This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations for 2022 continues the climate action theme with a series of events hosted by Deputahi Centre for Architecture and City Making. This recording is from an event recently held at Turanga Library called Climate Action, What's the Hold Up? and features a diverse group of local experts giving us their take on what hampers effective climate action. It starts with a welcome from director Jessica Halliday. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, ki te mana whenua o tēniwa takiwa, nai tua huriri, kei te mihi, kei te mihi, kei te mihi. Ko Jessica Halliday tōko wingua, ko ahau te kaiwhakahaere o te Pūtahi, Centre for Architecture and City Making. Kia ora, tato katoa. It's my very great pleasure to welcome you all, those in the room and those joining us online, to Climate Action, What's the Hold Up? the third event in the 2022 edition of He Whakawhiti Kōrero, Christchurch Conversations, towards 2030. In this series of 10 speaker events over two years, we're considering the ways we can work together in this place to address one of the greatest challenges we've collectively ever faced. There are two groups of organisations and people who have made today's event possible that we at Te Putahi would very much like to thank. Firstly, our sponsors and... Turning on helps, Jessica. Firstly, um, our sponsors and supporters, our series partner, Christchurch City Council, and our research partner, the urban wellbeing thread of Nakaina Ora, um, of building better homes, towns and cities, which is one of the national science challenges. Secondly, the others who are essential to this evening's event, our speakers, who are working hard, all of them, for change. Thank you for accepting our invitation to speak and help us all better understand um, this constantly perplexing question of how do you actually get action on climate change. So how tonight's going to roll? Well. We've got a series of quick-fire speakers, and then assuming they're going to speak for around seven minutes each, and assuming that there's time at the end, we will invite questions, um, and we ask you, so we'll invite everyone back up on stage, and we'll ask uh, them to provide quick-fire answers to a few questions, and you can um, send in your questions via uh, text to this number, 0204-110-9415. If you're joining us online, you can ask a question in the chat on YouTube. Our tu- uh, Te Putahi team will relay the questions to the speakers. It's a packed programme, so we'll keep our introductions really snappy. Um, and if you see my colleague Michelle just uh, waving at people, it's their time's nearly up. As I mentioned, this is the eighth event in a two-year series of ten events that look at climate action, city-based, place-based climate action in Ōtautahi Christchurch in the Greater Christchurch region. So far, we've taken a fairly technical approach to the matter of climate action. We've looked at what we need to do within our urban systems to reduce the major sources of emissions as measured by the Christchurch City Council. 
and we've used the Christchurch City Council's measures because the council and the city have a goal of reducing emissions of long-lived gases by 50% by 2030. So it's the end of October, and I think we can safely say that's now seven years away, 50%. And we've had the very great pleasure of talking with a lot of people in the last two years. And alongside their sense of courageous optimism, many are admittedly feeling frustrated and increasingly either desperate or despondent as we know what's needed, surely, for emissions to be reduced, but the actions seem to be slow and very hard won, and sometimes one, two, or three, or four times. And even then, emissions are not reducing in line with our goals in response to the urgency of the situation. Hence this event tonight, just what is the hold-up on climate action? When we were conceiving this event, my colleague Michelle felt we should take a different approach, Usually we'd do extensive research, identify the main areas that needed covering, uh, and then go and find speakers who could address each area. This time, we thought we'd identify seven local speakers and ask them to all address the same question, climate action, what's the hold-up? And the reason we've done this is that one of the concepts underpinning this series is the notion that city-based action is a great scale for change, right? We're a fairly close-knit community here in Ōtutahi Christchurch. We've experienced a lot of successful social movements um, and other movements, and it's a change in which we relate to on a daily basis. So if we're going to change and create action here, we should listen to those here who have thought about and are part of creating that change. Now, their answers may surprise you, so we invite you to listen with an open and curious mind, in particular paying attention to what exactly it is we might need to change, where and how we might create change locally, in our city, in our place, and perhaps around the globe eventually. So our first speaker tonight is Kera Sherwood O'Regan. Kera is appearing tonight via a pre-recorded video and will introduce herself. E tio te tui, e ki te kete te kākai, kōra ki te kōkā koe, tēnā koutou katoa. Kai ka here takata, kai ka te raukaua, tēnei tua hātū ki a koutou kua rūmene mai nei. Uh, e mihi ana, kai uh, ka takata whenua o tēnei takiwa, kai auku uh, whanauka o ngai tuahuriri. Uh, kai te tino hare ko te kākau ki te noho nei, uh, i raro I, tu, uh, I te maru o Maukatere, uh, nā reira, tēnei te mihi ki a koutou. Kai ka rika rika me ka waiwai o tēnei kaupapa uh, a Christchurch Conversations, kai te ropu uh, no te pūtahi, tēnā koutou e mihi ana i o koutou mahi whaipaika. Ko auraki te mauka, ko waitaki te awa, ko urua o rawa ko takitimu ka waka, ko kaitahu, ko kātimāmoi, ko waitaha ka iwi, Kai te tai o arai te uru, ko te kōhuro te mauka, ko kākou nui te awa, ko moira ki te marae, ko uenuku te whare. Uh, kai te ara kewa, uh, ko motu pōhui te mauka, ko awarua te moana, ko te rau aroha te marae, ko tahu pōtaki te whare. Ko Gerard Rawa Koviv, o ku uh, mātua, ko Kira Sherwood O'Regan, ahau. 
So kia ora, good evening everyone. I'm Keta Shewara Regan and I'm joining you remotely this evening um, because I am about to head away to the United Nations Climate Conference uh, COP27 in Sharm El Sheikh. Um, I have the immense privilege uh, at these COPs of working with incredible Indigenous and disabled activists, advocates, rights leaders, campaigners, uh, really to ensure that our rights are upheld in this international space. However, I do worry that with these things, we oftentimes put climate solutions and these sorts of conferences on a pedestal. And personally, I don't think that the real solutions to climate change are going to be found in big plenary halls or in the corridors of big convention centres. I think that the real solutions are a little bit closer to home. And for me personally, that's why I feel so immensely privileged to be back here in Te Waipaunamu and to now call Ōtautahi uh, Christchurch home for the last year or so. Um, so I, I want to very much acknowledge uh, my relatives in Ngai of this whenua. Um, I'm very much enjoying, uh, you know, remaking those connections and relationships uh, with whānau, uh, with our iwi, uh, and also with the whenua here. With that said, I want to change track for a little moment and ask you all uh, to do a small thought exercise. So I would like you to think of the first whakatoki that comes to mind and just hold it in your minds for a moment. And then I want to ask you a question. Now, if you picked one of probably the most famous uh, or most popular whakatoki uh, in Aotearoa, uh, you might have responded, he takata, he takata, he takata. So what is the most important thing in the world? It is the people, it is the people, it is the people. Now, you know, this is probably one of the most famous whakatoki, as I mentioned, and the, the corridor is a bit deeper. Um, and comes from a wahine rakatira uh, from Te Opori, so up um, Roto. And I would really encourage people to take the time to look up the whakapapa in the context of that corridor for a more nuanced understanding. However, I think it's relevant today, and I think it's a particularly popular whakatoki, um, you know, and it's very ubiquitous, uh, particularly in the public sector, because it highlights two things in particular. And that's the importance of number one, whakapapa uh, in our genealogy, and number two, whanaukataka, so that building and maintaining of relationships. So why do we think that this is important for climate change? I would say, and I would argue, in fact, that relationships are the essential ingredient for social change. Ultimately, when I think about climate change, I think of it as a people problem. Climate change happens when we fall out of a good relationship with the tire, so with our environment, with ourselves and with each other. And climate change is such a defining issue of our time, not because the uh, CO2 reading on any graph is inherently good or evil, but it is a defining issue precisely because it is a proxy for the climate impacts that affect people's lives and livelihoods. Climate change magnifies the problems that already exist in our society, and it does not do so with a fear or even hand. When we think about climate change in this way, it particularly affects certain groups of people, 
Indigenous peoples, disabled people, those from um, the so-called global south. And the reason for this is because the same systems of oppression that cause our communities harm are the very same systems that produce climate change in the first place. So you can see here some of the communities that I've already mentioned. Now, this is my admittedly very poor artist's impression of a glass table. One of those Scandi style tables, you know, with all the angled legs. But what is significant about this table is that it does have a few more legs than usual and that all of those legs support each other. And therefore, uh, because they're supporting each other, they also form that platform and support this lovely oval glass tabletop. Now, if we call the tabletop climate change, then what are the legs? In this analogy, I consider that the legs there are the systems that are producing and supporting climate change. So let's think big picture. Let's call this leg here uh, capitalism because capitalism gives us the imperative to extract and consume and pursue endless growth, which of course is the big cause of spewing out tons and tons of emissions that of course go on to cause climate change. Now let's take another leg over here. Let's call this one colonialism because I don't know about you, but I can't think of many systems that are more carbon intensive than the imperative to leave overcrowded industrialized cities, ship tens of thousands of your people across the planet to the lands, um, to other lands, to chop down uh, native forests, to subjugate indigenous peoples, fight off competitors with big militaries, set up whole food systems and economies that are totally out of step for the, uh, for the local and natural environment, but then to top it off, going and shipping all of that produce all the way back around the world so that people in the motherland can drink their morning cup of tea wearing Aotearoa woolen suits with a Chinese silk cravat um, and cotton undergarments. So with that said, let's do one more. Let's call this leg here ableism. And we'll call it ableism because it goes very much hand in hand with the industrial revolution that has made these cities so intolerable for people in the first place, demanding cheaper and cheaper labor, extracting more and more resources from other countries, but also from our bodies. Ableism alters our view of who we consider a person, who we consider worthy. And discarding the immeasurable and very, very valuable contributions disabled people make to our society, ableism frames our worth as human beings as being inherently tied to our ability to produce. So we can see then, you know, if we're thinking about ableism and all of these systems being interrelated, then maybe the legs next to that are things like classism or things like sexism. And in reality, we would have many, many more legs representing these intersecting systems of oppression. Um, there'd be many more legs than my artistic abilities allow me to uh, illustrate here. And so the reason that I use this analogy is to make us remember how these systems of oppression, these systems of oppression reinforce each other. They're interconnected, they hold each other up, but they also hold up this tabletop of climate change. So we understand now that climate change is not an issue that can be isolated then into one little corner for scientists and politicians to talk about in big conventions, 
but rather climate change is something that we have to understand as a symptom of systemic injustices. And we need to have that understanding if we actually want to solve it. So when I say things like Indigenous peoples have the solutions to climate change, it's not, or at least not only, out of hubris for my people, but also out of a recognition that climate change is a symptom of something that Indigenous, disabled and other frontline communities have been tackling for generations. So we're, you know, collectively, you and I here and myself personally, we're just arriving now to this intergenerational conversation and this intergenerational struggle. Now, our people might not have called it climate action uh, back then. They might have called it something else, like fighting for treaty rights, for land occupations, language and cultural revitalization. And today they might tweet it out with hashtags like hashtag land back. We absolutely have to understand these things and these movements as climate action because they're those things that are destabilizing one leg of the table. And when we destabilize one leg of that table, it destabilizes all the other ones around it uh, that depend on it and draw strength from it. So if we do that, then what we can do is we can actually uh, topple the whole table. But if we only focus on this sort of surface level, on this glass top, then we leave the problematic foundation ready to prop up the next tabletop system of these injustices. So, you know, it's really, really critical then that we recognize these systems all intersect and we have to tackle them at that root cause. We have to get rid of those table legs. Now, when it comes to the holdup on climate change, I don't think that the holdup on climate action is because we don't have solutions. I think that the holdup is because we're not willing to see the solutions that are already in front of us, like challenging capitalism or racism or ableism. I think the holdup is that we're not willing to learn from the generations and movements who have gone before us because it's much more comfortable and easy for us and familiar for us to perform this urgency and panic and outrage than it is to do the long-term deep work of being in good relationship with those communities so that we can dismantle climate harming systems in the first place. But the nugget of good news that I would like to leave you all with today is that these systems are ultimately made up of human beliefs and behaviors and relationships. And that means that they're ultimately about people too. And what that means is that they are entirely within our power to change. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Ka kite. Well, just our thanks to Kera um, for making time to prepare this video at a very busy time for her. Our next speaker is a past colleague, and thank you, Richard, um, is a past colleague and friend of Kera's, Dermot Coffey, uh, a GP and co-convener of one of my favourite climate organisations in Aotearoa, Ora Taiao, the New Zealand Climate and Health Council. Please welcome Dermot. Thank you. Tēnā koutou, ko uh, Dermot Kofi tōku ingoa. Uh, it's Mr. Dermot O'Kofig. Um, 
No, I'm very happy to be here and a big shout out to Kira if she's watching um, for a fantastic speech. So I am one of the co-conveners of Oratayo and we are the Climate and Health Council. I have a couple of slides which will be up in a moment but nothing too major. And I would like to speak very briefly about who we are um, and to discuss our opinion of some of the uh, hold-ups that are, are present for climate action within the city, within the country, around the world. So we are a, thank you, we are a, a group of um, health professionals and health students and healthcare organizations around the country of about a thousand members, 20 organizations or organizational members. And we take a very strong view that the uh, solutions to climate change are systemic and that putting the um, emphasis on individual change without systemic change and without wider systemic change is um, the wrong way to go, essentially. And I, I always give a couple of stories when we, we talk about this. I work as a GP, and a lot of our work as GPs is in terms of improving people's lifestyles as much as possible. Um, I'm not a very good GP. I don't see very much in the way of success rates with the patients that I see when we tell them to get more exercise, cut down on salt, improve their diet. And the reason for that is that we are fighting against a system that makes these changes really, really difficult. It does happen, but very rarely. There's no point saying to someone to exercise, to get a bike, if the facilities are not there to make it safe. All our efforts should be put into developing the facilities and letting human nature take care of the rest because people will make the changes if they are the easiest thing to do. And that's the other thing I always say. People look at other countries around the world. We look at, at the Netherlands. We look at Denmark. We look at Christchurch 50 years ago and we look at, say, the cycling rates, the active transport rates, there's no difference between us and them. You know, we're, we're no better or no worse than the people that were there. Human nature hasn't changed. People cycle in these other countries because the facilities are there and because it's the easiest thing to do. The barriers to doing it have been removed. Um, and as a kind of a personal example of this, we moved to Melbourne. I came to Christchurch 2018. We lived in Wellington before that, and we moved to Melbourne for two years. I was at home with the kids. It was a great time. I had a bit of time to do a personal climate audit. We did our audit in Wellington before we left. Went to Melbourne, got rid of the car, lived a very, very quiet life, didn't travel, didn't eat much meat. Um, and our climate emissions went up because the electricity was fueled from coal um, and the electricity powered the trains that we got around on. Um, and that shows that even the best individual efforts, we're, we're powerless in many ways in, in the face of these changes and in the face of these societal influences upon our behavior. Um, I'm just keeping a quick eye on the time I really don't want to go over. Um, so th those are the things, the, 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 the barriers that I see and that we see as an organization to climate action are that the, the environment in which we can make these changes is not conducive at the moment. And all our efforts should be into changing that environment. Um, and that needs political action, but it needs us to hold our politicians accountable as well. Um, I want to close with three very simple points. 
don't want to spend all the time talking about why action is not happening and maybe look at what we can do to improve climate action. Um, and the three simple points I have are here. Um, and our core message in Oratayo is that climate action is health action, and the best climate response is the best response for healthcare, for public health throughout the country, throughout the world. Um, climate action is health action is probably a fairly uncontroversial point. Um, active transport, air pollution, insulation in houses, preventing uh, imported diseases, um, food system change. All these things are, you know, very clearly proven with the evidence that's there. I would go further, though, and I would say that opposition to climate action is opposition to public health improvements, and that's an important point. When we hear politicians standing against climate action, standing against things like air quality improvements, standing against things like active transport and public transport infrastructure development, they're not opposing climate action alone. They're improving health improvements in the population. And we should hold them as accountable as people that push cigarettes, that oppose vaccination. And these are battles we have had and we will continue to have in climate change. The health benefits are unequivocal and the economic benefits from the health improvements are unequivocal as well. And the last point is that the health benefits are realized a lot quicker than the climate benefits. So if we're looking for a point to sell it on, to market the improvements that we need to make within our environment to prevent climate change, the health benefits are a very easy one. People feel them. They won't feel a 0.2 degree reduction or a 0.2 degree increase in temperature that's prevented, but they will feel that the air is clearer. They will feel that it's easier to get to work. They will feel that their kids can walk to and from school safely. I've said things like air quality improvement and insulation, you get immediate improvements. When you improve physical inactivity and when you make dietary changes, the improvements are very quick as well. But the avoided climate harms take years. So we can hang our improvements on this. We can put health at the core of our response. It makes it more acceptable to people. It makes it more tangible to people. And it can drive the response. People can feel the feedback that they need. And that is me. Join us. We'd be pleased to have you. Kia ora. Thanks so much, Dermot. Our next speaker is uh, the leader of one of the most important institutions in the city. Um, please welcome Kamala Heyman, editor of the Press and Stuff, Canterbury. Kia ora. Um, thank you so much to Te Putahi for inviting me to take part in this panel and to everyone who's um, tuning in. Hello to those of you who I know and the many people I don't. Um, I feel like a bit of an imposter uh, being here tonight uh, with such um, expert uh, panel members, so um, bear with me. I just really want to talk a little bit about what I, I have observed uh, as a journalist working in this city. Um, and a little bit about the role um, of the press, uh, what we can do and uh, some of our limitations. Um, so as a newspaper, uh, what we do is we, we report on things um, and we aim to be as objective and fair and balanced as we can be. Uh, 
Um, but as well as telling a story, I actually think the way we tell a story is really, really important. It begins with us deciding what stories we report on, um, how, we, how we frame those stories, and then finally how we actually um, publish them and the format uh, that they're published in, And which is why I have chosen some of these front pages to just show that uh, the press over several years... Is this working? Um, has grabbed stories that we think are about climate change and biodiversity and we think they're important enough that we do what is a, a relatively uncommon treatment, which is a poster front page. So um, the first one was, uh, um, let's get the date right, on 2021, the release of the Climate Change Commission's recommendations to government. Um, and the one in the middle was 2019, the release of the Zero Carbon Bill, and finally the third is a picture um, by our photographer Ian McGregor to launch um, our own project on biodiversity uh, called This Is How It Ends, and climate change was obviously is a significant factor in biodiversity loss. Um, so our interest in climate change stories began a long time ago, um, but our determination to supercharge our coverage and ensure our readers have no doubt of the importance of the issues involved can be traced probably back to 2018 um, with the launch of uh, Stuff's national project, Quick Save the Planet. Which button do I push? Some of you will remember this. Um, the project was the brainchild of uh, then staff editor Patrick Crudson, who explained that the goal of Quick Save the Planet was to shake up our collective complacency with what he described as insistent, inconvenient coverage, which would make the realities of climate change feel tangible and unignorable. The aim was to not only talk about climate change, but to mobilise our audiences to action. There have been some tangible results, and um, as Dermot said, it's not all about individual action. Um, Climate Change Minister James Shaw has told us that it was the increased public awareness that was made possible by this campaign that did uh, allow him or helped him win bipartisan support for the 2019 Zero Carbon Act. So that was um, really heartening to hear. Um, you don't see this logo anymore, um, but Quick Save the Planet hasn't changed. It's had a bit of a lick of paint and uh, some more resources. Um, it's now dubbed the Forever Project, and we've got two full-time climate change journalists, Aloise Gibson and Olivia Wannan, um, as well as Daily News. The team produces a quarterly print publication that's distributed with the press um, every few months. It aims to make climate change relatable to all of us, um, to talk about how it touches every aspect of our lives, um, and while it's hard to judge the impact on uh, their day-to-day -day work, we do from time to time get some feedback. Um, in May this year, a story that they published revealed that Cabinet had been given the wrong advice by MPI on the setting of New Zealand's uh, first emissions budgets. MPI had wrongly claimed that new forests could not be planted without significant deforestation um, as young forests are treated as carbon emitters. Uh, but MPI had uh, really made a mistake in its calculations. Olivia pointed that out. And as a result, the carbon budgets were updated um, and they were lowered by a total of 6 million tonnes. Uh, that's the equivalent of all the pollution emitted by the Huntley power plant over two years. So their work can and does make a difference. Um, so this was underway when our company changed hands. 
Our then Chief Executive Sinead Boucher bought stuff in 2020, shortly after our first Level 4 lockdown. Her purchase saved us from closure at the hands of nine our Australian owners who really didn't want to have anything to do with their New Zealand assets and were focused on their Australian media business. With her purchase, um, Sinead introduced a new charter um, and its declared mission was to make Aotearoa a better place. Seems um, kind of obvious, that's why we're all journalists, we all think we're making a difference, even if we're not. Um, but to declare that as our company goal um, was really important to us internally. Um, our first project, some of you will be aware of, uh, was not about climate change, um, though uh, obviously it is uh, connected, as our first speaker explained. Um, but it was to examine our own past critically and unflinchingly. It found our reporting had failed Māori, at best um, overlooking issues of significance, at worst um, we were plain racist, um, and this is absolutely true of the press. Um, so our apology published on the front page of the press and all other stuff newspapers came with a commitment to change. Um, we're still on a journey to improve our reporting of diversity issues, but we do have a team of 10 journalists devoted to Putiaki, which is coverage of uh, race, culture, gender, disability, and a, a lot of other issues that haven't previously been well covered by mainstream media. Um, and this year, um, Stuff hired a full-time Te Reo Māori translator based here in Christchurch, which has been fantastic and allowed us to bring a lot more Te Reo into our journalism. Um, and another uh, transformational change for us, Sinead announced that Stuff had become a certified B Corp in May um, to meet, after meeting international standards for governance and our impact on the environment. Um, and her renewed focus on and our mission for making Aotearoa a better place has spurred greater efforts by us at the press to try and do things locally. Some of you will be familiar with um, this campaign uh, in 2021, we committed to helping the Rod Donald Banks Peninsula Trust in its fundraising efforts to buy a 500 hectare block of land, um, which includes um, Mount Herbert and uh, Mount Bradley. And uh, the aim, which is already well underway, is to fence um, the whole block of land and introduce predator control and allow um, some reforestation to occur naturally over the next generation or so. It was a real honour to be able to support this project um, and it was absolutely wonderful to see how successful it was. And I just wanted to, one of the, the most inspiring parts of it was to read some of the feedback that we had from people who supported it and donated to it. Um, comments included, this fills me with joy. To be able to contribute to buying a hill is a wonderful feeling. What a thrill to be able to donate to such a cause and I felt like a kid in a candy shop. So given the right project um, and the right organisation such as the Rod Donald Trust, the public are really enthusiastic about being able to help and I think the media can play a role in mobilising this kind of effort that lies latent otherwise. So our By the Hill project was followed up with a broader campaign to see if Otatahi Christchurch could become uh, something known uh, as a national park city. Um, it's a concept that... Um, is based on the fact that conservation efforts should not be entirely focused on national parks, which are remote 
and uh, removed from the places where people live, but that efforts need to be made to improve the environment that we all live in, the cities and towns um, where we spend most of our time, and to improve the connection of people who live in urban areas with the natural environment around them, our parks and our streetscapes and here in Christchurch, our beaches, hills and uh, former residential red zone. So this campaign was so loved by the trees that count, they made a donation of 10,000 trees to our city. And half of that donation, 5,000 trees, uh, was planted in a single morning by hundreds of volunteers who came into the former red zone and uh, brought their spades and shovels and teddy bears and uh, planted trees. Um, it was an absolutely huge effort um, made possible by the city council who provided the land and uh, a lot of the advice. Um, so in September, uh, we had another go at another project. Um, this was um, launched in the spring ahead of the local council elections. We knew that one of the hottest topics in our city was cycleways. Uh, we knew that it was something that was uh, important to voters, and we wanted to tackle a lot of the myths around it and encourage people to try cycling. Um, it's had really mixed success. One bike shop said they'd seen a spike in sales of bikes. Um, one of our staff members bought an e-bike for the first time, but on her second day cycling to work, ended up tangling uh, with a um, tramway and uh, hasn't been able to be, come back to the office. Um, and the third impact um, that maybe we didn't, well, we fail, our third failure in this campaign was that uh, one of the council's most outspoken uh, supporters of cycleways, uh, Mike Davidson, was not re-elected. So, so finally, I just wanted to say uh, that there's only so much we can do. Um, but we can't do anything if we don't know about projects, campaigns and inspiring people. Um, but we want to hear all those stories and we want to do our best to support action where it is and encourage and mobilise people in our community to help. So please let me know. Thank you. Thank you, Kamala. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome our next speaker to the stage, uh, Dr. Madis Azamandi, Senior Lecturer in Educational and Leadership Studies at the University of Canterbury. Please welcome Madis. Kia ora tata. Just a disclaimer, I did say to just take my bio from the website, and then I forget that my background is not in education, and that's usually the first thing I say because I'm a kind of proud political scientist <laughs> um, with a degree in peace and conflict studies. So I have some notes. Please apologies. I was in Dunedin up until this afternoon, so I have no slides. But I am convinced that if I had a slide, you'd focus on the slide rather than focusing on me, so maybe it's a good thing. So I want to try to tie some of the things that I was going to say to my previous speakers. It's just an occupational hazard, I guess, that I have when I educate and I try to bring things together for myself, but also for you. Kira started off saying that we have local solutions, and I thought to myself, we have local solutions, but we don't often want simple solutions. As a person who grew up in Germany, but who's originally from the Global South, I always find it really interesting how in the West people tackle a problem. 
And oftentimes we tackle our problems by thinking about big things that we need to innovate. And let me give you an example of why I get really irritated with that. When I moved here, I moved here from Berlin, a city in which very, very few people have a car, in which even fewer young people have a driver's license. So I came here and I didn't have a car before I moved here. I do not particularly enjoy driving. Um, and I found it really hard to get around because it's, I lived in Dunedin. And even if you're really fit, it's not the easiest place to ride a bike. And buses weren't really a thing. So then when I talked to people about, you know, why is it so difficult to have good public transport? People would always say, oh, we don't really use it. People don't want it. And I thought... It's actually not true. The reason why we all use our public transport system is because it's faster than the car. It's really simple. It's also cheaper than the car. So we're hoping that somehow people will want to use the bus in order for us to provide the buses when really what we have to do is to have a system that's there and make that system the better system, the faster system, the cheaper system. So I always get irritated. And very recently at work, somebody said, can you imagine if we had self-driving cars? It would be so amazing. You could take a nap. You could read. You could... And I thought... Now, there is this... I was once in a you know, vehicle where I was doing my homework. I was reading. I was sleeping sometimes. And I said to this person, I said, you know the self-driving car exists. It's called a bus. It's called a subway. Um, but we're so invested that somehow the solution is going to be innovation. It's going to be new, and it's going to be something that we haven't had. And somehow going back to something as simple as driving a bus seems like it's not innovation. And we pour money into science and technology that's going to give us something that we didn't have rather than returning us to something that might be actually quite old. Um, so that's my point one. Um, point two is ask people what they want. And I want to connect that to being a person of color and why the environmental movement in the West is such a white movement. Kira said at the very beginning, indigenous people around the world are actually at the forefront of climate, the impact of climate change. Um, even people in the global south suffer way more than we in the global north do. And I understand we're technically in this weird position of New Zealand being both in the south and also part of the west. So bear with me as I use these terms. Um, but it is because these movements have historical ties. Right? The movement for conservation has very close ties to a very colonial logic in which we extract people from land in order to conserve it. But who are those people we extract from the land? Right? So there's a history that we need to go back to. Again, I'm a racism scholar, so there's going to be a lot of about um, racial and colonial injustice, is that we can't think about climate action without doing a little bit like what the press did and kind of look at ourselves and say, ooh, what have we done, and has this movement really been always on the right side of justice? So I'll give you an example. The way we have established national parks in all settler colonies, and that's for Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, has often been under the guise of protection, and where these, these lands that were part of indigenous communities have been taken and put into, state, into the state for the state to, to take care of. And then we do that in the name of, oh, well, because you can't really take care of it, right? So that's also why people are wary. 
there's pushback against how environmentalism has looked. Um, and it's often at the expense of other material conditions that need to change. Now, this is another pet peeve I have when we talk about climate change, and that's our doomsday mentality. People say, oh, the world's on fire. If we don't do something, we're going to have no future. If we don't do something, our lives are going to be really terrible. And I say some people have lived the apocalypse for a very long time. We talk about what it might look like if the sea levels rise, if we might not be able to grow our food, and we should be really worried about how we grow our food. But Pakistan just experienced some of the worst floods in the history of that country. A third of the nation is underwater, a third of the nation. Over 20 million people have been displaced. Some people live the apocalypse already. Um, and if you asked them what are the issues, what are the burning issues for them, they would not start with climate change. And I loved Kira's um, illustration. They would probably start with the legs because what is actually causing much more of the devastation is the impact of the hierarchies and in, in imperial relationships that we have, capitalism, it's a big one. The legacy of colonization, obviously corruption in those regimes, I'm not gonna sugarcoat that, I think there's that too. Um, but for us, what's visible is the plate. And we wanna talk about the plate because the legs didn't impact most of us. So that's why in the West now we see this, the climate movement looks very different, and I mean physically looks very different, um, because that's the, that's the area where it, we feel it, um, but some of us have felt it for a while. So let's be wary with the doomsday message, and when we, when we start with the doomsday message, it kind of puts us at the, as the starting point. Um, look elsewhere. I have another, I wanted to bring that as a, as a slide that was going to be my only slide. There's actually a podcast I really, really like in New Zealand. It's called Girls That Invest and it does financial literacy uh, for girls and young women. Um, and I think they're incredibly smart people. They recently traveled to New York and they had this Instagram post that said, here are recommendations of going to New York. And one of them was, take the subway, it's actually much cheaper than Uber. <laughs> Um, and I saw it and I thought, I don't understand this. I don't understand this little post. I don't understand. And I showed it to my partner who's uh, from Aotearoa. And he said, of course, of course, because we don't have a good public transport system. So when people go overseas, they don't think that taking the subway or taking the bus might actually be the fastest and cheapest option. <laughs> and I thought, that's cute. <laughs> Now, and here's my final, my final point. Let's move away from individual, what, what the power of the individual is. The individuals have power to come together to exercise collective pressure. That's the power of an individual, is when you come together with other people and you exercise your power, whether that's pressuring, pressuring your politicians or pressuring companies, pressuring the state, um, or being in solidarity with other people. But we can't invest in please recycle. Please cycle. And again, those are admirable things, but we have to move away from convincing ourselves that actual real systemic change happens because we make good decisions. 
because it takes real privilege to make some of those really good decisions, right? So for people to say, let's buy electric cars because that's much better for the environment, it completely leaves out that we still engage in mass extraction to build those electric cars. Um, and I actually don't want more electric cars. I would really like to see less cars. Um, so yes, maybe we move to electric cars as we reduce our uh, <laughs> dependency on vehicles. But also we need to really move away from how systems try to fool us that it's us who are the problem, right? Like we have power as individuals to come together collectively to make them change the big ticket items. Um, but don't be fooled um, that somehow individual actions are where we start. They're not... However, if you do want to take an individual action and you are somebody who's in a very privileged position and you think, what can I do? What kind of legacy I want to leave in this country? I always say, land back is a really good one. Kia ora, Madis. Our next speaker is James Driver. Um, a psychotherapist here in Ototahi. Please welcome him to the stage. Kia ora koutou. By now you'll have heard many of the practical and systemic reasons that can prevent us from taking adequate climate action. But even when these barriers are not in our way, we can sometimes still fail to act. Why? because we also have to overcome internal psychological barriers to action. There are countless different psychological barriers that can get in our way, enough that I could have written this talk 20 different times on 20 different topics. But for tonight, I want to focus on one of the most common responses I get when talking to friends or family about the climate crisis. I know it's happening, but, but I try not to think about it. Or the other response, but what can I really do that would actually make a difference? And I feel like I want to clarify that while I say those are common responses, I think those are common responses from people like myself, people who have privilege, because as Maris and Kira, I think, have beautifully articulated, the people who are most affected by the climate crisis have been thinking about this stuff for years. They don't have the luxury of thinking, you know, I'll try not to think about it. But both of those responses, trying not to think about it or, or feeling helpless, like there's nothing we can do, I believe are both a response to the anxiety that the climate crisis can evoke in many of us. And I hope to show tonight that there are other ways that we can respond to that anxiety that are more helpful, not only for tackling the climate crisis, but also for our own psychological well-being. Faced with an existential threat, it's normal to have a strong emotional response, to feel grief and anger, but often with this comes anxiety and dread. And it's anxiety that can be one of the biggest hurdles we need to overcome to take effective action. Understanding and managing our anxiety can be the difference between a life lived in fear and uncertainty and one lived with passion and commitment. Anxiety comes from a system in our brain geared towards self-preservation. When that system's overactivated, we experience the fight, flight, or freeze response this fight, flight, or freeze response can trigger hostility or a desire to isolate and protect ourselves at the expense of others, an impulse to stick our head in the sand and distract ourselves, to try not to think about it, or to feel helpless, overwhelmed, and become paralyzed. 
Anxiety also pushes us towards absolute black and white thinking. When there's uncertainty about the future, we don't know what to do, how to plan, or whether to know if our plans are going to work out. And our brain can try and handle this uncertainty by convincing us that we do know what will happen. And this can lead to either denial or fatalism, the idea that we're doomed and that there's nothing we can do about it. Although it can feel terrible to take this doomed perspective, our mind can actually prefer a horrible certainty over an uncertain future. But neither denial or fatalism are realistic or helpful to us, and both can get in the way of meaningful action. There are many possible futures ahead, and we can have a role in shaping them. We need to understand that our instinctive response to anxiety, though it feels natural and as if it's trying to protect us, is instead doing the opposite. The more we hide away and try to ignore or disconnect from others in an effort to protect ourselves, the greater our fear becomes. I should know, because I've tried. For a long time, I felt so terrified of what the climate crisis might bring, and so despairing that I would do my best to simply not think about it, try and avoid reading about it or talking about it, because doing so would push me into depression and despondency. The problem, I discovered, is that you can only avoid reality for so long, because reality has an unfortunate habit of showing up when you least expect it, and posts on social media, references on podcasts, comments by friends, or simply my own observations of the world. And when we've been hiding or avoiding something and that thing pops up unexpectedly, it only increases our sense of fear and helplessness. Instead, we need to do the opposite of what our fear might have us do, to face into our anxiety, examine it, and move towards action and connection. One of the greatest things I think we can do to combat our anxiety is to recognise that whatever the future holds, we do not have to be alone in facing it. People have faced terrible adversity throughout human history, and those who have fared best are those who have come together, collaborated, supported each other, and faced these challenges head on. We can start now to form connections, strengthen communities, and talk to each other about this, really share our fears and our hopes for the future. So many people here and around the world are already thinking, talking, and working to create better climate outcomes for our future, and we can join them. Anxiety can become debilitating when we try and manage it alone, but can become tolerable when held within a group. Faced with the climate crisis, it's easy to slip into thinking, what can I as a single person do in the face of such an enormous issue? Thankfully, the answer to that is somewhat simple. Any caring, pro-environment, pro-community action will help, and there are countless things that need doing. We know that actions that challenge and disrupt the systemic problems causing the climate crisis have the greatest impact, and so where possible, we should direct our energy there. But in general, taking any action is better than none and often creates momentum that leads to further commitment and engagement. It's important to take action that is sustainable. We're in it for the long haul, after all. One model that I've found helpful as a starting point is the climate Venn diagram created by Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. The idea is that we make a list of what we're good at or the strengths that we can bring to climate action, a list of what needs doing to address the crisis and a list of the things that we have passion for or that bring us joy and try to find the things that fall within all three categories. Yes, we need activists and protesters, climate-focused politicians and policy makers, but not everyone has the skill or desire to do those things, and there is so much more that needs doing. 
perhaps you're more valuable shaking things up within your current organisation, pushing them to become carbon neutral, or maybe you're good at persuading or inspiring others through art, or maybe you like to work behind the scenes, providing transport or practical support to those who want to be on the front line of a civil disobedience action. We each have a role to play, and I can't stress enough that any action is better than none, not just for the planet, but for our own state of mind and our well-being. Lastly, we need to be kind to ourselves and each other. Research has clearly shown that shame, guilt, and criticism are not usually effective motivators. In fact, they can be barriers to action. Yes, we should aspire to get involved and take action, but there's no value in beating ourselves up when we fall short or criticising others. Shame and guilt most commonly lead us back to disconnection and isolation, to avoiding others and avoiding taking action due to fear of judgment. Faced with an imminent threat like the climate crisis and the grief and anger that this evokes, it's understandable that there will be conflict and passionate arguments, but we need to use our outrage to energise us to push back against the systems that would have us paralysed rather than to criticise each other. Now, more than ever, we need to work together with passion and kindness to create a better future. Thank you. Thank you, James. Our next speaker, is she here? Oh, she's there on the end, is Sarah Templeton, uh, third-term Christchurch City Councillor. Please welcome Sarah. Tēnā koutou katoa na mahinui ki a koutou, no ingarani uku tipuna ke te noho o ki o tatahi, ko Sarah Templeton ahau. I'd actually like to start by um, acknowledging my fellow speakers. Um, everything tonight has resonated hugely with the stuff that I'm going to talk about. It's all so connected, and um, I might add in a couple of references to your stuff as we go. We're at a tipping point globally. Well, actually, it looks like we've already passed four out of the nine main tipping points um, as a planet. Um, and as a low-lying coastal city prone to flood, fires, erosion, coastal inundation, we joined a growing number of cities internationally and declared a climate and ecological emergency in 2019. However, as a city, our emissions continue to rise, and not a lot seems to have happened. So what has happened to our climate emergency response? It is complicated. Um, and it's also simple, and two words can sum it up. Not enough. The why is the complicated bit, and with only seven minutes, I'm going to stick to the three key barriers. I'm also going to keep it high level and a little more diplomatic than my current Twitter feed. Um, inertia. A property of matter by which it continues in its existing state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line unless that state is changed by an external force. The larger the mass, the larger the inertia. So physics has long been used as an analogy for the resistance to change of large organisations and broader society. Not necessarily an act of resistance, as there's a clear acknowledgement of the need, but the sheer amount of effort needed to make that shift. As an individual, it was relatively easy to cut out most of my transport emissions, hop on a bike, go vegetarian, but to change a system to make that possible for everyone takes a lot of planning, resourcing, and political will. 
But with around 3,000 staff members and a wide range of departments with varying responsibilities, wrangling it all to head in a new direction with a climate lens over everything takes time. It is underway like the invisible webbed feet of a duck furiously paddling under the water, but it's out of sight. While we signed off on the high-level strategy in 2021, we don't yet have an implementation plan signed off. But there has been increasing work underway in sustainable transport space for some time, both in public transport infrastructure, pedestrian-friendly spaces and paths, and of course, cycleways, where the political will teeters and nearly falters. Which brings me to my second barrier, short-termism. Our electoral cycle, the internationally short three-year electoral term, a colonial import um, from the UK, uh, means that a third of our time is spent in campaign mode rather than on the task at hand, and that politicians are caught in a vicious circle of decision-making by electability rather than making the tough decisions that are best for the city. Every decision feels high stakes when it's on the front page tomorrow. Deep breath. This is not my Twitter feed. Um, we have a system of incentives. Uh, uh, sorry, we have a system that incentivizes short-term thinking and rewards decisions made to please current voters ahead of future-proofing the city, um, as the local government act actually requires us to do. In Ōtutahi, we have also had a series of urgent crises: earthquakes, floods, fires, shootings, pandemics. These things all needed our immediate attention, and rightly so and there will be more. They were short-term, but resource-hungry and have taken time and funding that could have been spent on future challenges. The time frame seems longer for climate change, when in fact, it is not, and decisions need making now to turn around our emissions over a longer period of time. And that brings me nicely to the third barrier, disconnect. Between us, across time and across geography. Like many residents and voters, councillors and mayors, are human. They bring different life experiences, knowledge, understanding, values, preconceptions and ways of thinking to the table. Different levels of empathy and imagination. However, when you look around our table, one thing they are lacking is diversity. It is also difficult to see the transport emissions from Ōtutahi fanning the flames of the bushfires in Australia. But they do. Or to feel the pain of those in massive heat waves or devastating floods in other parts of the world to get a sense of the scale. There is a disconnect between us and those who follow us, imagining a different future, either better or worse, and our grandchildren living within it is not easily and so is easily dismissed. Politicians are also in the position of privilege and disconnected from the experiences of our most vulnerable and minorities who tend to be excluded from many of our processes and they're protected from the early impacts of climate disruption. And at a local level, there's a disconnect for each project. People first could not see how good this could be. They now love it as it opened, um, outside Riverside. And now most people cannot recall that where people picnic in the public realm outside Riverside was once 22 car parks. Would the businesses now want them returned with a loss of people? Of course not. That would be nuts. But would they want to make the same changes for another street? Would the politicians want to make us a people-friendly garden city with an attractive city centre for large and small events? Of course, you'd think. 
but there are barriers here too, and a disconnect between the success of Riverside, Cashel Mall, High Street, New Regent Street, when we're looking at future plans for our city. So what can we do to overcome these barriers? And so this is Litchfield Street, clearly, um, from exactly, well, close to, because I could get the same angle as the current proposals for the Takaha Streets. So what can we do? Inertia. Our large organisations and our key stakeholder groups, businesses, residents, associations, those kind of groups, need a bigger nudge. More pressure exerted to help, it, help them change direction and gain momentum. Get involved. Add pressure. Be vocal and submit on proposals. Come and talk to council. Talk to businesses. Let them know that your business requires them to be thinking long-term. Short-termism. Our communities, businesses and elected members at all levels need reminders that they need to think long-term if they want your business and your vote. Tell them individually over a coffee if that's your action. And in public, send letters to the editor and post social media posts that stick to the issues and aren't personal attacks. Tell them in submissions and deputations and at, hear and at hearings. Change the public discourse and with the disconnect. Build connections. Tell stories, draw analogies, and try what value and try out what values will connect to different elected members. And don't give up. Find your climate action. It can feel overwhelming at times, but there is hope. We can make a difference together. Motato a mokauri a muri akine. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, I now have the very great pleasure of introducing our final speaker for this evening, Sarah Maindonald, a poet, counsellor and mother. We invite a poet to speak at every event in this series. On this occasion, we have asked Sarah to address the same question everyone else has answered, as well as read some poems. Please welcome Sarah Maindonald. Thank you. Kia ora tātou. Mahi nui ki a koutou koutoua. Um, mahi ki ngā mana whenua tēnei rohe. Uh, namaste. Salamu alaikum. Nisam bulavanaka. So I'm very proud to be here representing poets and um, I'm a member of Fika Creatives. So I thought I'd talk about um, our perception of time as a barrier to effective change and how we're colonised by concepts of time that shift us away from relationships with each other and with the earth. And I do feel real synergy of this quarter or through the evening. Concepts of time that are linear and sequential govern us. We compartmentalise our lives in segments of time, so we're time poor, we're connection poor and environmentally poor. And yet these concepts keep us stuck. So indigenous concepts of time, like tewa or leva, are very different. Time is sacred, cyclic, inclusive of ancestors, past and present is merged. Now obviously these concepts would take a week to talk about in depth, but um, I, I did read a thesis by Monty Suta from um, Ngāti Pirau, talks about tewa, and he explains tewa as being like a balloon, with many events and encounters being part of that balloon, as at time that expands, all of those events remain a part of its fabric. To be present to the stages 
of te kore, te pō, te whaiao, te aumarama, where time is cyclic and spiritual and allows connections with tūpuna, significant events, maunga, awa, whenua, waka. Te hui, te talanoa, very much a part of the Pacific, to take time to talanoa and sit and talk with each other, to be present. Where time is less governed by linear time, but governed by stages of tikanga and readiness. This allows greater connection to the earth. In order to be effective in changing anything, we need to connect with the earth and each other. Spare a thought for the people of Rakiraki, Fiji, and the people of Tonga, our whanaunga who have suffered from our dislocation with the earth. And this poem is called Rakiraki, Fiji, Category 5. A thousand frogs are on their backs, belly up, pelting rain, rat-a-tat-tats. The arms of the clock wave feebly at the girl in the window, it floats towards the temple. A bright red sari twists around a dead dog. It would not marry. The pundit clings to Saraswati and Lachmi. Marigolds fill his mouth and stop him from screaming. She noticed an eddy, a sandal court. She thought she knew. She couldn't find her mother in the house. We must change our sense of time and learn from the knowledge of those closer to the earth. We must think of Tangaro and Papatuanuku, who suffer from our carelessness. This poem's called The Sea in a Bottle. It holds the ancestry of our peoples. It is extinct. It holds its summer frolic. It holds the memory of Maui's birth. It holds the memory of ice which covered the planet. Tangaro's anger lives in this bottle. In defence of his mother, he gouged his brother's side. Sand ran out between his ribs. Tangaroa is turning, plastic poisoned, oil smeared, moko misshapen by radiated waves, his Pacific face barely visible. Where is his mother, sensuous curves of brown earth draped on the bones of the multitudes? Tangaroa worshipped her. He longed to be snuggled soft with his siblings, not cast away, swallowing the world's waste, the quick fix, the coke and sex on the beach, the discarded condom, the genome of a people seeping into the ocean. She died, a death that tortured her over decades. She roused in struggle, regained the power of her limbs, but then they attacked her heart. The blood stopped flowing, she began to rot, seeping into the sea, the sea in a bottle. So in, in, in healing, we need to look towards the people and the land as one. We can't compartmentalise all of our actions in terms of our communities and the land. I just want to acknowledge George Sweet of Ngāpui and Croatian descent who recently passed away at the age of 92. He was influenced and was an influencer of many ideas, including Taoism. This final poem is a tribute to his encouragement to us to all be present. Be here. Just be here, he whispered to himself as he exhaled. Just be here, as Tokolo and Tivalu are extinguished. Just be here, as the children of Pakistan and our faces in the water. Just be here, as our sun becomes malevolent. Just be here, as our farmers drive their diesel tractors to Wellington to save their holy cows. Just be here, as we slowly fill our lungs with plastic. Just be here, as our children start to yell at us globally to take action. Just be here as Nestle slurps the last drops of water from Strawberry Creek in California burns. 
Just be here as the hills of Whakatū slide slowly over us. Just be here as we pretend we have tomorrow. Just be here. Thank you. We have a few minutes now for some questions. So the way we're going to do this, I think we'll just invite all the speakers to come up onto the stage at once. Jessica's been compiling the questions, and um, I will try to wrangle mics and so on. Very conscious that we're going to model linear time. So... We're going to encourage people afterwards, please continue this conversation. Consider this the beginning rather than, than the entire thing. Yeah? Jess, over to you. Um, Sarah Mainland, I realise you have to go right on 7.25 because Sarah Mainland has a packed programme. And we do actually have a question about time. Before you even spoke, so someone was obviously ready to listen, um, so, Sarah, for you, before you disappear, can we reframe climate action to the positive? Can we work on being in this moment in ways that bring forward a more alive future moment which requires awareness of both what is true and relevant? Thanks, Socrates. So I just wondered, seeing you encouraged us to be here, <laughs> what practices you might encourage us to be in this moment well, without being the voice of God, <laughs> I think I think I guess I just think you know every moment is expansive. You know, if we're totally present to each moment, and if we take, um, you know, if we really take that lens in terms of being connected with each other, then I think it's a natural step that we're more connected with the earth. We're not disconnected with what the earth is needing from us. We might ask James the same thing. Uh, how long do we have? <laughs> 30 seconds. <laughs> oh, right, okay, um, no problem. Um, I, I think I would say something along similar lines. I, mean, I, I think, God, just looking at each other, talking with each other, actually really seeing each other as people, um, I think the more we can actually form relationships with one another as human beings, the more we can kind of connect to our love and care you know, for each other and the earth. I mean, any of this, I think, is... is going to help us. I don't think there's a simple answer, but I think that's a good starting point. If no one else wants to answer that question, thank you so much. Um, for all speakers, but particularly Dermot and Madis, what can we as individuals do to support your mahi? Dermot, you're first. Um, what can you do? I think you can, if you can join us, join us. Um, everybody's individual voice adds to the voices of, of the group as a whole. Do you have to be a health professional to join? Um, you don't have to be. Um, most of our members are. Um, but we welcome people from the wider climate advocacy um, population as well. So we're, we're happy for people to join us. Our message is a very simple one. Uh, climate action is health action. And I think if you just get that thought in your head then that's enough because it'll seep through into everything you do. Um, so my work, probably not so much because I'm a lecturer, so I'm not sure if there's much you can do to support that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I would probably say something similar, and that's, I think racial justice is also climate justice. So do get involved and find what is, what is the little thing that you're good at that you could do. And the other one is start thinking about what you are willing to give up. This is not going to be something where we're going to all walk out winning and our lives are going to stay the same. So we, particularly in people who live in what is considered the developed world, in what is considered the Western world, in the, the worlds that are mass consumers, um, are we willing to give up? And I think that requires us to sit for a really long time. So I think start doing that as well. What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to inconvenience yourself with? I love to travel. I really love to fly around the world. I know that that is not something I can continue doing because it's one of the things that's really terrible. Um, and then maybe the other one that I forgot, and I forgot to say that, one of the biggest contributors to climate change is warfare. Warfare. So you can also become, you can really commit to changing the way this planet is going to go about by becoming a staunch pacifist and urging our countries no longer to go to war with other places. That's also a good place to start. I might ask Sarah, just, um, I was listening to Matis and thinking, that, what are you going to give up? That's a pretty tough message for a politician. It's a very tough message, um, and especially in our short electoral cycles. So um, I once saw, you know, a meme. You know, what what would you give up for your kids? And, you know, it's the, um, and everyone thinks about that in the short term, you know, giving up, you know, living somewhere so you can get the kids to the right school, that kind of stuff. But actually, would you give up driving a bit so that your kids would have a livable planet for the future? Um, but you're giving up stuff is, is tough. Um, Offering alternatives is really good. And it's, um, as a city, changing the systems to make things easy, as we heard as well. Um, make it easy for people to choose better. Um, it's not actually framing things as giving it up, maybe. It's framing it as doing different. And people find different hard, let alone giving up. So I think framing it as different. Kamala, what would support the press and stuff to be even more... Um, I guess, pointy on climate change. Um, oh, I don't want this to sound like a, um, uh, a request for subscribers, but, <laughs> um, but it's, it's actually very, very real that um, the media are under huge pressure and writing about climate change is not something that gets us huge audiences and mass support it's not as clickable as stories about scabies um, or Kanye West. So um, if, if you want to support us to continue to employ people writing about climate change, then please um, make a donation. Um, Sarah Templeton, a couple of questions directed at you. Um, what are the key council decisions in the next six months on which we should make submissions or deputations? Um, there's been a few talked about that wouldn't necessarily have come to us. But the, the first one is the, the photo I put up initially, the Takaha Street surrounds um, around um, Takaha Stadium. That's our open for submissions now. Um, we've heard a potential um, uh, report coming on um, the wheels to wing cycleway to overturn the decision. Um, so public pressure on that 
would be really good. But we've got other things coming up. So um, the organics processing plant, you know, how we process our um, organic waste in the city, um, needs support. There was a move last term to send it to landfill, where it, of course, would be really expensive and create methane. Um, so composting is really good. So there's a range of those kind of decisions coming up. It's keeping an eye out for them. They'll be up on the council website. I'll be posting them on my Facebook page, Twitter feed, that kind of stuff. Um, this one is also directed at you, but I actually think several panellists mm. could answer it, in particular Kamala. Um, how do you address the backlash for having more cycleways in Christchurch? How can we have constructive conversations with people who are against it? That's a really tough one. So I happen to be in a ward where we have three being built, as we speak, or two official cycleways plus the coastal pathway. Um, and they all have roadworks at the moment and all have disruption and we don't have backlash. Um, the odd time that there's a comment from someone saying, oh, it took me too long to get to Sumner, the rest of the community pile in and go, well, why are we getting this amazing facility? Why don't you just go a different way? Um, and so the conversation is different depending where you are in the city. Depends um, on local elected member support as well. And so uh, talking to elected members, um, sharing your values, sharing your stories, talking to local businesses um, when you're out and about on your bike and or if you've driven there and just talking about how much you value being able to get around by bike because it's often the businesses people are um, reacting to. Those kind of things make a real difference. The, what we've tried to do at the press is to tackle some of the kind of myths around cycleways. So just head on. Um, when people tell us that cycleways cost too much, um, you know, we try to put it in context. You know, a cycleway if it costs three million dollars a kilometre, but a motorway costs thirty million dollars a kilometre. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and you know, are they over-engineered? We sort of sent people out onto the cycleways to have a look, and we sort of sent them out into the parts of uh, Christchurch where there's just a painted line, um, and asked them which one made them feel like they could send their kids to school on a bike. Um, you know, so it's really just trying to pick up all the kind of often commonly uh, phrased criticisms. The misinformation. Yeah. yeah. Could, I, could I make add one point to that? And that is that I think we need to um, bring our influence to bear on people like our employers, um, uh, companies and people like that. We, we, the, um, Wheels to Wings um, cycleway development um, is opposed by, uh, or the preferred settlement is, is, is opposed by the uh, charity hospital. And so we're in a situation where a healthcare provider is opposing a cycleway. And um, in their submission, they say that's because they want to retain on-street parking and they're worried about congestion. Now, I think that's unethical. I would go that so far as to say that a healthcare provider it is unethical for them to oppose active transport. And I think we should call them out on that. So not just our politicians, but the people who are seeking to influence our politicians. It's important to have a word with them as well. One minute. Oh, okay. Sarah, well, we, we know you might... Sarah Maindonald, we know you might have to slip away. But the last question. Who on the panel has recently asked what the natural environment wants on a specific issue? Or... What would a project look like if it respected the constraints of nature or even better supported nature regenerating itself? Uh, yeah, it, it's a bit long, but essentially, who's put the natural environment first lately in your thinking or in a project? 
So one thing I will say is that um, you know, Council's just got an award for um, the work that we've done on this, the stormwater with the natural environment enhancements at the same time. We've got a stack of work happening in the Avonore Takoro River corridor that is um, rebuilding wetlands um, and working with the press on the Rod Donald Trust on Ahu Pataki and all of those kind of projects, um, putting that first. Um, we try, we get pushback, but we try. That's all we've got time for at the moment, but afterwards we will encourage people to um, grab the speakers and have a chat in a nice way. <laughs> So just me quickly to close. So thank you all so much for joining us this evening. A huge thank you to all our speakers. You've so greatly stimulated our thinking, our ambitions, and I hope our actions. Thank you to our supporters and partners, the Christchurch City Council and the Urban Wellbeing Research Thread of the Building Better National Science Challenge. And thank you all for joining us here in the room and online. If you're here in Tūranga and you want to chat, please hang out over here in the activity room. Please don't trip on the cable on the way there um, to continue the conversations with the speakers who can stay. Um, now, we've heard seven speakers provide us with differing and overlapping reasons why acting on climate has been so elusive at times. One of the challenges seems to be that we've reduced it to a purely technical problem with technical solutions. And while change in example four... And while change in, for example, our transportation system will be essential to reducing emissions, perhaps it is time that we recognise that this alone won't be enough and we need to be looking at social transformation. And I'm so grateful to our speakers for so many reasons, but the key one is this. We've been reminded that climate change is a people problem and that is a people problem we all have a part to play and that part is in relationship in relationship with Tatao, this wider living world, and in relationship with each other. It's about some of the things our speakers talked about, collective power, being in solidarity, creating connection, and in greater connection to the earth. It's about right relationships. And to that end, we invite you to please diary our next Christchurch conversation, which is on in two weeks. It's on the 8th of November, and it's called How Do We Grow a Climate Action City for Everyone? So follow us on socials, join our newsletter, and keep the conversation going. And remember, what we've heard tonight is the most important action you can take right now is to build relationships in place, connect with each other and with our living world. Poor Marie. been listening to Climate Action, What's the Holdup? Part of the Christchurch Conversations 2022 Climate Action Series. Many thanks to Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making for sharing this recording. Podcasts for the whole series will be available on the Plains FM website. Search Christchurch Conversations.